We've talked about Mormonism quite a bit in previous episodes. Perhaps you know them as simply one of the religions that can come knocking on your door at random hours to preach to you. Maybe you know that many of them are located in Utah, but you're not quite sure why. Or maybe you've heard that Mormons believe that they get their own planet when they die and that Native Americans are actually descendants of ancient Jewish people that sailed to the United States. Today, we're going to try and understand Mormon history as well as their faith and answer some of the questions you may have about Mormonism. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and before we get started, let me make a massive disclaimer. This is by no means all of Mormon history, nor is it all of their values. Obviously, I can't condense all of that into a single half hour episode as Mormons hold a variety of beliefs within the same religion. So there may be some conflicting information where some groups or sects believe it, others do not. However, this is the very abridged Mormon history and value system based on my sources, which I've found, which in large part include the official church's website itself. So with that disclaimer in mind, let's get into it. While it's been said that Mormonism is a new religion that started in the 1800s with founder Joseph Smith, many Mormons don't see their religion that way apparently. Instead, Mormonism isn't necessarily a new religion per se, but seen as a restoration of Christianity. According to their official website, Mormons not only believe in the Bible, but in the Book of Mormon and see both as the word of God. This is where many Christians contend Mormon beliefs as at the end of the Bible, it says you cannot take away or add to the Bible. Therefore, since the Book of Mormon is an addition in their eyes, it's invalid. The Mormon response to this is, quote, it seems odd to us to be accused of being irreverent or disloyal to the Bible when we suggest to the religious world that the God of heaven has chosen to speak again, quote. Our challenge is hauntingly reminiscent of that faced by Peter, James, John, or Paul when they declared to the religious establishment of their day that God has sent new truths and new revelations into the world truths that supplemented and even clarified the Hebrew scripture. Any effort to add or take away from the Bible was suspect and subject to scorn and ridicule. And so it is today. So how exactly did this restoration come to be? Joseph Smith, born in 1805, was 14 years old when he had what would later be known as the first vision. At this time, Smith was increasingly troubled by denominational differences among local Christians and wasn't sure which church he should follow. When he went into the woods one spring morning, he saw a pillar of light descending from heaven, followed by an image of God and Jesus Christ forgiving his sins and warning Smith that all denominations have strayed from the truth. According to the Mormon church, this first vision brought more light, knowledge, and understanding of the substance of God and his beloved son than man had arrived during the centuries of speculation. It also reaffirms the fundamental Christian belief that Jesus died for all sins, though we'll talk about the Mormon values and the church involving that in just a moment. Three years later, in September, 1823, Joseph Smith was just 17 years old when he prayed to God and received yet another vision. This time he was visited by the angel Moroni, who told Smith that he was chosen to be an instrument in the hands of God and gave him a vision of golden plates on which would later become the Book of Mormon. As an aside, some sources reference him as a resurrected angel, the man, while others refer to him as an angel. But the point is the next day, Smith guided by this supposed angel or angel whatever, located the plates in a box about three miles from the Smith farm. However, the angel told Smith he could not take the plates yet and he had to return on September 22nd for the next four years and be instructed on the mission God has in store for him. 
When he tried to touch the box anyway, he received a shock and was thrown to the ground. It wasn't until 1827 that Smith could actually retrieve the golden plates. But before we get to that, it's worth mentioning that Smith ran into trouble between the time of the vision and retrieving the plates. Apparently in 1825, when Smith would have been about 20 years old, he had a reputation for using a seer stone to find lost objects. A man named Josiah Stowell asked Smith to help him find an ancient silver mine. But after a few weeks, Smith told him to give up the effort. A year later, Stowell's relatives brought Smith to court, accusing him of glass looking and being a disorderly person. Several witnesses testified and Smith was fined for court services. However, FAIR, a nonprofit, Faithful Answers Informed Responses, claims that after a review of court documents, even witnesses testified that Joseph possessed a gift of sight. And the court hearing of 1826 was also not a trial, it was an examination. The hearing itself was likely initiated from religious concerns. In other words, people that objected to Joseph's claims about seeing an angel and things of that nature. Stowell's relatives might've been concerned about Smith's influence on Josiah and the fines weren't actually fines, but bills to the county of payment of witnesses and things of that nature. In actual legal documents themselves, you can see that they're called fee bills as opposed to fines as well. Even the Mormon church admits that the actual outcome of this hearing is quite a puzzle and there's a variety of accounts as to what happened. All that we can be fairly confident in is stating that Smith's influence was spreading within his community and some seem to be quite concerned by it. Anyway, the following year was especially important as Smith was finally able to go and get the golden plates that the angel had led him to four years earlier. The Church of Mormon features witness testimonies on the church's website in regards to these events. Joseph Knight, an early member of the church, allegedly claims that he met with Smith on the 22nd of September, 1827, and Smith told him about the plates. An apostle, John A. Witso, also says that Joseph Smith was chosen as an instrument in the hands of the Lord and a true prophet. There were 11 people in total, aside from Joseph Smith, that saw the golden plates, and their testimonies are found in the front of every modern edition of the Book of Mormon. However, what skeptics find interesting is that every single witness of the plates themselves is in some way related to Joseph Smith or David Whitmer. And David Whitmer, just FYI, is the guy who acted as a scribe while Joseph Smith translated the plates. Now, Mormons argue that Whitmer's testimony is sound, especially because David eventually left the church. Even when he abandoned the church though, he did not deny his testimony. And apparently he left because he felt that Smith had gone astray in his later years and of course, We will get to that. But back to the plates, where did they come from? How did they become the Book of Mormon? Well, as for these plates, they were supposedly an ancient record that were more like thin sheets, which appeared to be gold rather than actual gold tablets. As for who wrote them, the Book of Mormon itself claims they were engraved by two pre-Columbian prophet historians from around 400 CE, Mormon and his son Moroni. Their script was called Reformed Egyptian, a language that isn't known or recognized by Egyptologists or linguists, but which Mormons claim was altered according to our manner of speech. We'll get back to that, but let's continue on with what Smith did with these plates. Now, Joseph Smith was only able to read these plates with the help of his seer stones. As he read them, his friend Martin Harris acted as his scribe. By some accounts, he would place his seer stone or an interpreter and the plates into a hat, press his face into the hat to block out any light and read what words appeared on the instrument. His seer stone was essentially a rare kind of rock and the interpreters came with the plates in 1827 and they were two stones in silver bows, according to the church's website. 
However, once Joseph became more experienced in spiritual matters, he apparently didn't need them anymore in order to translate. Some illustrations of the interpreters Smith used to show them looked almost like a pair of glasses for reference. But moving on, Joseph Smith began translating with his wife, Emma and Harris as his main scribes in 1827. The transcription was 116 pages long, known as the book of Lehi, but it was lost or stolen. According to the church, this happened when Harris asked to borrow the pages, but they were never seen again. Some believe that Harris's wife took and burned them, claiming that if Smith really wasn't making up the scriptures, he should be able to recreate them. Others still claim that the 116 pages were forbidden from recreating again. Though critics say that this version of events is implausible as the original manuscript was written by hand with ink, therefore any alteration would be noticeable and unconvincing. Regardless of how exactly these pages were lost, the outcome remains the same. Smith lost the ability to translate for about two years and only resumed his work in 1829. Almost all of the present text in the Book of Mormon was translated between April and June of 1829, according to the church itself. And Smith's chief scribe was a school teacher from Vermont named Oliver Cowdery. Now, in the middle of the translation on May 15th, it's also been said that Cowdery and Smith went into the woods to pray where they were visited by John the Baptist. He told them that the Melchizedek priesthood would be restored. And that was a King of Jerusalem and written about in the Old Testament, that that dude. Uh, And Joseph Smith would be the first elder of the Church of Christ. The other visions seem to relate to the book being founded and the restoration of the religion, but this event marked the restoration of the church itself and therefore became important to Mormon history. Eventually, once the translation was complete and Smith received a copyright for the Book of Mormon, it was published. In 1830, each book sold for $1.25 and in April of that year, the first organization of the Latter-day Saints was held at Whitmer Farm. Smith and Cowdery were ordained as elders and Smith became known as prophet. Smith continued to have visions about how the church should be run and allegedly told by an angel to proceed with plural marriage, AKA polygamy. Even with the Church of Mormon itself has said that Joseph Smith had up to 40 wives, which has stirred up significant controversy over the years. On the other hand, Grant Palmer, a former Mormon, author of multiple books about Mormonism and philosopher has stated that Smith never partook in polygamy as that would have required commitments. Instead, he claims that Smith just had many concubines, which doesn't sound much better to be totally honest. Clearly think are either affairs or concubines. They are not wives. How do we know they're not wives? Because a concubine, Joseph Smith was not just a mistress. He had to get a revelation that it was okay to have extramarital sex with women. And then he had to ask for her consent. If she did so, she became his concubine. So it's not just a mistress, it's a revelation with a consent. A plural marriage is much, much a deeper commitment. You have to have the priesthood, you have to have a ceremony, you have to have his permission, you have to have witnesses, and he puts it at the apex of his theology and doctrine. You cannot get into heaven in the top tier of the slush. Grant Palmer's book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, hasn't only questioned this aspect of Mormonism, but quite a few other traditional beliefs about the church's history too. He's argued that Joseph Smith revised the scripture to his advantage and that the Book of Mormon leaned heavily on the King James Bible and personal experiences. As Palmer stated in an interview, half the verses in the Nephite Book of Mormon are plagiarism from the Bible itself. A lot of plagiarism in in 3rd Nephi, especially where half the verses are right out of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Unfortunately, Palmer was disfellowshipped for this controversial book. Not fully excommunicated, but suspended. Now, let's get into what Joseph Smith and early Mormons did to share the Book of Mormons with others. As the church grew, Mormon missionaries began spreading their message. Smith was arrested on numerous occasions for his preaching as there were anti-Mormon mobs and violence at the time. The Missouri governor actually ordered all Mormons to be driven out of the state or wiped out in late 1838. On some occasions, Mormons were welcomed, such as the Missouri Mormons that reached safety in Illinois in 1839. They were led by another notable Mormon, Brigham Young. In the years that followed, Young became the church president after Joseph Smith and his brother were shot and killed, leading to a struggle in church leadership. Saints were seemingly divided about whether or not to follow Smith family or potential Mormon leaders. Yet, while I get the impression from the church website that Smith was simply a prophet being persecuted for his beliefs, other sites paint an incredibly different picture. Allegedly, not long before he was shot, Joseph Smith established an organization called the Council of 50 in Illinois designed to govern and rule the earth. Grant Palmer too has argued that there's extensive evidence Joseph Smith attempted to overthrow the US government. Not only did Smith try to run for president in 1844, but he ordered the destruction of a newspaper that opposed him. That led to an outcry and criminal charges, landing him in jail. And this is where a mob broke in and shot him. Even the Jesus of the Book of Mormon is far more radical than the biblical Jesus, according to Palmer. He states that Jesus's nature in the Bible is loving and there's no conflict as to who you're going to worship. Whereas in the Book of Mormon, he is confusing and his nature isn't all that clear. You get a bifurcated Jesus, you get a a, a very kindly worshipful Jesus, and then you get this Old Testament Jesus. And I think that conflicts Mormons so they don't really know. Again, this is only Grant Palmer's opinion, but historians have agreed with the sentiment. According to David Bickler, author of Forgotten Kingdom, The Mormon Theocracy in the American West, The Mormons in the mid 1800s genuinely believed the world would end within their lifetimes and that their own kingdom would have dominion over the United States. Much of this did spread under Brigham Young, the church president. Now Young is also known for eventually bringing Mormons to Utah as they searched for a promised land and his interactions with the Native Americans there. The Mormons believe that the Native Americans are descendants of the tribes of Israel who came to America in 600 BC. And therefore it's been said that Mormons quote, felt a deep responsibility to aid and teach these people and to raise them from their fallen state, end quote. Brigham Young himself has also said this little nugget. Let the poor Indians be taught the acts of civilization and to draw their sustenance from ample and pure resources of mother earth and to follow the peaceful advocations of the tillers of the soil, raising grain and stock for subsistence instead of pursuing the uncertain chances of war and game for a livelihood. I have often said, and I say it now, let them be surrounded by a peaceful and humane and a benevolent policy. Thus, they will be redeemed from their low estate and advanced in the scale of civilized and intellectual existence." Now, We will get into the accusations and controversy around Mormon beliefs and racism more during the second episode on Mormonism. However, while Mormons were guilty of some of the same disgusting, we must civilize the Native Americans mindset that we've seen from settlers of the time, I recognize that these beliefs are not exclusive to Mormons. It still doesn't make it right by any means. It's still very wrong. I just wanna say that this wasn't a lone thought process, unfortunately. Now, what is exclusive to the Mormons is the Utah war though. Essentially, the United States government was upset that Mormons were governing themselves. 
Brigham Young was appointed the governor of Utah. So that basically was Mormon territory and they didn't like how he was running things over there. Issues from governance to land ownership to polygamy and Native American affairs, all of it contributed to the rising tension. The Republican party stated in 1856 that they pledged to end polygamy and slavery in Utah. This naturally included replacing Brigham Young, which the US believed Mormons would naturally resist. While Mormons eventually renounced polygamy in 1890, they had about 55,000 members at the time that believed in polygamist ideals. Plus, just a year after that statement, newspapers across the US reported that Mormons were seeking the Native Americans' allegiance as they clashed with the United States. It seemed like the US Army intended to invade the new Mormon promised land for this, and though Brigham Young seemed to plan on them fleeing, others were more confrontational. One apostle, Herber C. Kimball, even declared, I will fight until there is not a drop of blood in my veins. I have wives enough to wipe out the United States. In 1857, Apostle Parley Pratt was killed in Arkansas, prompting the Mormons to fight back and massacre a group of 140 non-Mormon emigrants there, including women and children. They blamed the Paiute tribe for this, though they formally did take responsibility for it 150 years later. Now the Mormons were actually prepared to flee, but the government offered them a peace and a pardon instead. Peace negotiations ended in 1858 and the Utah war was largely regarded as a costly, disruptive and unnecessary confrontation between the Mormon people and the army of the United States. Still, the army agreed to build their camp 40 miles Southwest of the Mormon capital. And if you wanna look more into this topic, I highly recommend it because this was only a brief summary of the Utah war. And I am saying this is, you know, this is surface level. There is so much more that we could say about this portion of Mormon history, but this is just kind of what I found about how the book was discovered and how Mormons have settled. And I wanted to kind of condense that as much as possible to make it just clear enough of a timeline, but I'm not getting into all the dirty details. And while I understand that there may be some Mormons who disagree with me, I wanna make it clear that my main resource for this information was the official Mormon church's website. Though I did of course look into other sources such as Palmer to see what has been widely contended over the years. So now that we have a pretty rough idea of how the book and religion were born, let's discuss what the book actually says and the beliefs held by the Mormons. And before we jump into this head first, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when you're shopping on your phone or computer. And I love shopping online just as much as anyone else, but sometimes I'm pretty terrible at keeping track of promo codes. But now I have Honey to find those precious money-saving codes for me. And Honey is a tool I've been using at this point, I think since 2017 or 2018. Like I have been using Honey for so many, 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 many years. And what's been really great about using Honey for all of these years is I've really gotten used to how Honey works and just how it can save me money. And I've used it for everything from food, clothing, gifts for friends, moving stuff, new furniture, like you name it, I have done it. And Honey is really easy because it's a free shopping tool. It just searches the internet for promo codes and applies the best ones to your cart. So you do the hard work by shopping and they help you at checkout. And now Honey doesn't just work on your desktop, it works on your iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. And I'd never recommend something I don't use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash casket. That's joinhoney.com slash casket. 
Today's episode is also sponsored by Blueland because sometimes in order to go green, you have to go blue. Blueland was founded on the belief that a cleaner planet starts by eliminating plastic waste while creating powerful, effective cleaners for your entire home. With Blueland's refill cleaning system, you can reduce your waste and your guilt. With Blueland, you buy the bottle once and refill it forever. And one thing I really love about the bottles and the tablets, the refill tablets, which is the big thing behind Blueland, is how everything's color coordinated. That makes me very happy. Like the little happy neurons in my brain, they're like excellent every time they see color coordination. And what's really great about Blueland is they have something for every aspect of your home. They've got toilet tablets, dishwasher tablets, laundry tablets, hand soaps, you name it, they have it. Multi-purpose cleaner, everything's coordinated, it's easy to use and it's refillable. So you just buy the plastic bottle once and then you don't ever buy another bottle again. You just keep refilling the tablets instead. It's amazing. And right now you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash casket. That's 20% off your first order of any Blueland products at blueland.com slash casket, blueland.com slash casket. As previously mentioned, the Book of Mormon was a topic of controversy and debate as a religious document. There are a ton of other controversies that surround the Church of Latter-day Saints, but we'll get into that more in part two. For now, let's discuss the belief system of Mormons and how they compare to Christianity. Please note again that different Mormons will take different views depending on how they were specifically raised, but this is a general overview of the values within the church. Mormonism at its core is based on Christianity, although it is not generally regarded as a branch of Christianity. On their website, they provide a brief overview of their core beliefs, that God loves you, Jesus is our savior, life has purpose, the scriptures guide us, becoming Christ-like, and Jesus Christ's church. Each core belief comes with a basic summary that isn't really involved. You can take them at face value, and in doing so, it's almost impossible to discern in what way their core beliefs differ from that of Christianity. Through the teachings of Jesus Christ, one can find happiness because God loves you, for example. Within the summary of beliefs, there's only one reference to anything unique to the Mormon church. And that is of course, the Book of Mormon. In their description of the scriptures guide us, they make mention of the Holy Bible as a relevant scripture, followed shortly by the Book of Mormon as included in the scriptures. Jesus Christ serves as a central figure in their doctrine, portrayed in pretty much the exact same way as a Christian doctrine with the same history. That being that Jesus Christ born to the Virgin Mary was the son of God. He performed miracles and taught his gospel, and he was crucified and resurrected. He serves as the central figure in Mormon theology, but they don't accept the version of Christ that arose over centuries of religious practice. As Robert explains, with the deaths of the apostles and the loss of priesthood, the institutional power to perform and oversee saving sacraments or ordinances, learn the mind of God and interpret scripture was no longer on earth. In other words, in the early centuries AD, while religious people were attempting to preserve the church, they were acting without proper authority dictated by God. He further explains the subsequent intersection between Christian theology and Greek philosophy, effectively blaming Greek philosophy for the dilution of original Christian scripture. And for those of you that don't know, the Trinity is the unity of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit as three persons in one. So while they are considered three distinct manifestations of God, they are ultimately of the same being. Mormons reject the idea of the Godhead as a singular being, rather believing each member as distinct beings with different roles, but united in purpose. Millet asserts that one must look to early churches, not the New Testament itself, to make a case for the Trinity. So while Mormons assert themselves as Christians, there are distinct differences even in their fundamental theology. 
And as an aside from theological understandings that have been debated since the foundation of Christianity, what do they believe in particular that makes them wholly unique? Well, that brings us back to Joseph Smith, his first vision and the Book of Mormon itself. So let's go back to talking about those plates. Now we've already talked about how Joseph Smith and how the Book of Mormon came to be, but what exactly did he translate off of those golden plates? Now, similar to the New and Old Testaments, the Book of Mormon is composed of multiple divisions known as books. So where the New Testament might reference Matthew or Luke, the Book of Mormon might reference Jacob or Enos. The stories in each of the books were translated directly off of multiple different golden plates with four distinct sources. The plates of Nephi, the plates of Mormon, the plates of Ether, and the plates of Brass, with a majority of the content coming from the plates of Nephi and Mormon. As a whole, the plates provide a record of the peoples of ancient America as settlers of the promised land. That gets us to the first major break from Christian theology presented by the Book of Mormon, the idea that America was the promised land. In the Old Testament, the promised land is referenced specifically as the land of Canaan, located east of the Mediterranean Sea. However, rather than being just precisely a physical place, the promised land is also a theological concept pointing to the salvation in Jesus Christ and the promise of the kingdom of God. The Book of Mormon contradicts these interpretations by rejecting both the physical location and the metaphysical nature of the promised land. Interpreted by Jeffrey R. Holland, the Book of Mormon states that America was simply a portion of that large single landmass which God in his creative process called earth and which when completed was pronounced good. Whatever its name and geographical configuration, however, it was from the beginning a land of divinity as well as a land of destiny. It also notes America as the location of the Garden of Eden, but after the great flood noted in Genesis, God separated the continents to keep the promised land free from the indiscriminate traveler as well as the soldier of fortune. It wasn't until the Lamanites left Israel and populated the Americas around 600 BC that the land was populated again. And that is an altogether frustrating homogenization of Native American history, considering that it is thought largely that the Americas were settled around 15,000 years ago. There is a disgusting history of racism and sexual abuse to Native Americans by the Mormon church that we will discuss in the next episode, but just know that this is the core aspect of their primary religious text. Now, back to the plates. The plates of Nephi and the plates of Mormon were the most important plates translated, hence the book becoming of Mormon rather than of Joseph Smith or something like that. The plates of Nephi, according to the church's website, quote, were of two kinds, the small plates and the large plates. The former were more particularly devoted to spiritual matters and the ministry and teachings of the prophets, while the latter were occupied mostly by a secular history of the peoples concerned. Of the 15 books that comprise the Book of Mormon, the first six are translations from Nephi, Now I won't get into the specific stories discussed in each book as it's an interpretation and the overall themes present that are generally more important. It was the small plates of Nephi that were primarily used in the first six books because the next six books were translations from the plates of Mormon. Mormon's plates were oddly abridgment and commentary on the large plates of Nephi, hence why the small plates were used for the books of Mormon. The Latter-day Saints website has an article describing the written history of the plates and how they came about. They assert that the plates were an important aspect of a Nephite record keeping. They were passed from king to king with records being updated with each new generation, with Mormon being uniquely separate from any other set of plates. There's no reason presented for why Mormon decided to do this, just that he did. And as a side note, remember those 116 pages that were lost? 
Well, those pages were translations of the Plates of Mormon that would have comprised the original six books of the Book of Mormon. But the translations were lost, so Joseph Smith had to make do with the Plates of Nephi instead. And in my opinion, all of this really leads to some major questions. So if the Book of Mormon is a direct translation of ancient texts that in of itself was rewritten from other ancient texts, so why would Smith be using the rewritten versions and not the originals? That's like the first thing I think of. As there is no information about that, we can only speculate. But the fact that the translations were lost that come from the Plates of Mormon and thus the Plates of Nephi only factor in after Smith's credibility was questioned really raises some eyebrows. If you were trying to create a truthful translation, you would use the original source, period. Like that, that's it. That, that's the end of the conversation. You'd use the original source. I could understand it a bit more if the story was that the plates of Nephi were used primarily and then commentary by Mormon was used supplementally. And of course, this is just my opinion. So feel free to take it with a grain of salt. But I digress back to the plates because we still aren't done with the plates available. Now, the next set of plates, the plates of Ether, were written by Mormon's son, Moroni, which ended up being like the final three books of the Book of Mormon. It was then that around 421 AD, he sealed and hid the plates until a resurrected Moroni delivered the plates to Joseph Smith in 1823. And of course, there is no specific mention of why the plates were sealed at this specific point in time. Given the nearly 1000 years of written record keeping by the entire line of Kings, it is striking that Mormon and Moroni decided not only to rewrite the written records, but then to stop keeping records after the fact. The last set of plates referenced by the church are the plates of brass, which contain several books of the Old Testament and related prophets. These specific plates seem to have been used primarily for citation purposes rather than being used as any significant amount of text. As for how big each of these plates are, by the way, Joseph Smith himself is quoted as saying, "'These records were engraven on plates "'which had the appearance of gold. "'Each plate was six inches wide and eight inches long "'and not quite so thick as common tin. "'They were filled with engravings in Egyptian characters "'and bound together in a volume as leaves of a book "'with three rings running through the whole. "'The volume was something near six inches in thickness, "'a part of which was sealed.'" And as a side note, there is some speculation that the plates were actually made of tumbega, a gold copper alloy, and instead of actual gold, since a pure gold book would be very heavy. This would account for the much more reasonable weight as Smith described the plates to be around 60 pounds. All of this is just to say that everything to do with the plates is extremely suspicious, as is the foundation of the religion. And it's very important to note that these are the origins, like this is the origin story. Not only is the translation based on an abridged version of events and the record keeping seemingly stops at random, but also the plates themselves are just gone. Now, before we close out today's episode, I want to talk just a little bit about some of the more like out there assertions and beliefs that come from these supposed plates, as a lot of these beliefs are what led the church into their various controversies over the years. And we will have a whole episode just dedicated to controversies. This was kind of like the warm up, So don't worry about the time left in this episode. It is entirely going to fill a separate episode. So we know that the core of the Mormon religion is following the word of Jesus Christ. But we also know that the Book of Mormon presents some versions of events that drastically differ from other religious interpretations, like America being the promised land. But that's really only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the alternative views presented by the Mormon scriptures. 
one of the less controversial ones is Kolob, the planet of the dead. Kolob was written about the Book of Abraham, which is not a part of the Book of Mormon, but rather the Pearl of Great Price, also written by Joseph Smith. The book reads, and thus there shall be the reckoning of the time of one planet above another, until thou come nigh unto Kolob, which Kolob is after the reckoning of the Lord's time, which Kolob is set nigh unto the throne of God to govern all those planets which belong to the same border as that upon which thou standest. And it is given unto thee to know the set time of all the stars that are set to give light until thou come near unto the throne of God. In other words, Kolob is a planet that is physically close to God where Mormons go when they die. Now that's not to say every Mormon believes that they go to this mystical planet named Kolob when they die. In fact, the church as a whole seems to generally reject this particular part of the doctrine. If you search for Kolob on their website, you'll only get four results. Only one which actually references Kolob in its text from an interview with a former church president. So while a fun little tidbit to pick out of various canon texts of the church, it isn't really representation of what the church actually believes. I just thought it's kind of like funky that there's like the dead planet full of Mormons that's somewhere like floating around in space by God and they don't believe it now, but maybe it was something that used to be believed. I'm not entirely sure why this was ever part of their text, but uh, yeah, that's a thing. On the flip side, you have a much more potentially harmful practice, baptism of the dead. Now, as the church website explains, Baptism by immersion in water by one having authority is the first saving ordinance of the gospel and is necessary for an individual to become a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to receive eternal salvation. While this practice is not at all uncommon among Christian theology, the Church of Latter-day Saints also believes that you can be baptized after your death. As they reason it, it almost sounds like an honorable pursuit. Many people have lived on the earth who never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who were not baptized. Others lived without fully understanding the importance of the ordinance of baptism. Still, others were baptized, but without proper authority. So if they truly believe baptism is required for eternal salvation, they don't believe you are doomed to damnation if you do not understand the importance of baptism. But in practice, it's kind of uncomfortable as it disregards a person's autonomy. If you practice a different religion, why would you want to be baptized? And if you're deceased, how can you say no? They sort of cover themselves here by saying that deceased people are not baptized against their will, asserting that you still have freedom of choice in that baptism even when you're dead. But regardless of what you might say about it, it's still kind of uncomfortable. Many Holocaust victims' family members have been especially infuriated by the unwelcome proxy of baptisms for their family members. More on that in part two though. Other sources do argue some of the more fundamental and technical impossibilities within the Book of Mormon, saying that Jews could not have built a boat in the desert to sail to the US as there was not any timber. Another verse in the Book of Mormon claims that there was ample fruit and wild honey within the Sinai desert, which again, not possible. And Nephi 1.2 states that Hebrews who left Jerusalem and came to the Americas spoke Egyptian when Hebrews, well, they spoke Hebrew. And their records? also kept in Hebrew. Why would they write their sacred history in Egyptian? So that's kind of the big question here is, I don't think they would have, they would have written it in Hebrew. Now we could debate the fundamental and technical details for some time, but as I said, this is very much a summation of Mormon history and values. I highly recommend you look to other sources and dig a little bit deeper if you want to know more. I know there is a ton of YouTubers that are ex-Mormons that talk in depth about the history and belief system and things of that nature. There's plenty of sources that know 
and go into much deeper detail than I do. The Mormon church has had its fair share of controversies related to a lot of topics we talked about in this episode. I wanted to get this episode out so that you can at least build a good basic understanding of what Mormonism is and the background of the religion before we get into those controversies. So as I've been hinting at, I will see you again in part two where we dig into said controversies. But with all of that being said, that is where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something new, make sure you're liking, following and subscribing so you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hear what information I've presented to you today. Again, I hope it was entertaining. I hope you learned something. And of course, thank you. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.